This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by the new book, Ingredients, The Strange Science of What We Put In Us and On Us by George Zidon. New York Times bestselling author Daniel H. Pink writes, If you crossed Bill Nye with Stephen Colbert, you'd get George Zidon. Ingredients is a masterful piece of science writing. Learn more over at georgezidon.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 410 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the new movie Color Out of Space, directed by Richard Stanley, and discussing other examples of cosmic horror. And this won't involve spoilers for Color Out of Space, and may involve spoilers for other movies that we discuss, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Grady Hendrix, making his 19th appearance on the show. He's the author of nonfiction books such as Paperbacks from Hell, and novels such as My Best Friend's Exorcism and The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. He also worked as a screenwriter on the recent movies Satanic Panic and Mohawk. So Grady, welcome to the show. Hello. The next up, we've got Teresa DeLucci, making her 11th appearance on the show. Her articles have appeared on Boing Boing and Den of Geek, and her short fiction has appeared in Strange Horizons and Tor.com. She's also the editor of Come Join Us by the Fire, a free audio anthology from Nightfire Books, the new horror imprint of Tor Books. So, Teresa, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me back. And also joining us today is Paul Tremblay, making his sixth appearance on the show. He's the author of novels such as The Cabin at the End of the World and A Head Full of Ghosts, as well as the upcoming novel Survivor Song. Stephen King calls his recent book, Growing Things and Other Stories, one of the best collections of the 21st century. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be back. And this episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by the new book, Ingredients, by George Zidon. And here's a description of the book. It says, Cheese puffs, coffee, sunscreen, vapes. George Zidon reveals what will kill you, what won't, and why. Explains with high-octane hilarity, hysterical hijinks, and other things that don't begin with the letter H. Ingredients offers the perspective of a chemist on the stuff we eat, drink, inhale, and smear in ourselves. Apart from the burning question of whether you should eat that Cheeto, Zidon explores a wide range of topics, including Is sunscreen safe? Should you use it? Is coffee good or bad for you? What is that public pool smell made of? What do cassava plants and Soviet spies have in common? And when will you die? Zidon, an MIT-trained chemist who co-hosted CNBC's hit Make Me a Millionaire Inventor and wrote and voiced several TED-Ed viral videos, makes chemistry more fun than Hogwarts as he reveals exactly what science can and can't tell us about the packaged ingredients sold to us every day. Hank Green, who is our guest back in episode 328, writes, Nutrition is a mess of marketing, classism, science, truth, guilt, confusion, and outright hucksterism. Ingredients lifts the film from our eyes with humor and reassurance. And Emily Calandrelli, who is our guest back in episode 318, writes, Through incredibly weird and wonderful analogies and delightfully nerdy wit, George helps you understand how scientists work toward the truth. I wish he'd rewrite all of my high school science textbooks. So again, the book is called Ingredients by George Zidon, and you can learn more over at georgezidon.com. So that's George Zidon, Z-A-I-D-A-N.com. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Okay, and so if you don't know what cosmic horror is, I'll just define that quickly. So we're talking about stories that are sort of in the tradition of H.P. Lovecraft that sort of tap into the idea that the universe is vast and mysterious and humanity is tiny and insignificant. 
And if you want to know more about Lovecraft, you should check out our panel discussion on H.P. Lovecraft back in episode 71. And so this uh, this movie we're going to start out talking about, Color Out of Space, is a adaptation of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft short story called Color Out of Space, Color with a U. And um, so let's start off with Teresa and have you just tell us, uh, were you excited about this color, this new Color Out of Space movie? I was, you know, I've been a long time Richard Stanley fan and this movie's been in production for a little over two years. So I've um, really been waiting for it since the director was at Necronomicon in Providence, uh, in 2017, I guess it was. Um, and we got to see some concept art for it, which was really colorful, really creepy and strange. Um, and this lived up to the expectations for me. I was really happy to see Richard Stanley back with something new because he's had a very um, interesting road to Hollywood and away and back again. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that because we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, documentary, Lost Soul. But so first, why don't you just say, Teresa, um, why are you such a big Richard Stanley fan? Uh, because I am always a goth chick at heart. <laughs> and Richard Stanley started... Uh, by doing a lot of music videos for Fields of the Nephilim and other goth industrial bands. So his first big Hollywood movie was called Hardware, which was marketed as a kind of Terminator ripoff, but was really so much more. This post-apocalyptic art house horror movie with sci-fi elements and this killer score that featured Skinny Puppy, P.A.L., Lemmy from Motorhead was in it. Iggy Pop was a DJ in this movie. Like it just hit all those cult buttons for me. And he went on to do some really great other horror movies, um, including Dust Devil. So between Richard Stanley, Nicolas Cage, who I fell in love with all over again after watching <laughs> Mandy last year. Um, and this Colorado space is from the producers of Mandy as well. And it's kind of like an interesting companion piece. Um, yeah, super excited for this one. Definitely more a fan of Richard Stanley and crazy Nicolas Cage than Lovecraft, per se. Well, that's interesting because you said that you went to Necronomicon, which is, is that a Lovecraft specific? Um, it's a Lovecraft and, you know, now more weird horror focused convention. And it happens every other year in Providence, Rhode Island and has an amazing group of authors who come together. Paul and Grady were both there um, at the same convention when Richard Stanley was a guest of honor. Uh, not sure if you guys made it to the panel on this. I didn't. I know. I was really bummed. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. really something because Richard Stanley doesn't make a lot of public appearances or hadn't before. So, yeah, not a big Lovecraft fan myself. Like, I like him enough. Like, the the cosmos the mythos is interesting but i like more the conversation people have with lovecraft now as opposed to the straight source i would just mention a quick sort of anecdote because i think we may mention phil gillatt's movie they remain later uh but in 2017 phil gillatt ran the the film side of necronomicon so he, he had to spend a lot of time with richard stanley and <laughs> um, I wish I, I wish Philip had taken a camera around with him because it seemed like he and Richard Stanley were having a fun buddy, buddy comedy. <laughs> well, 
Well, you know, it's funny. I think that Necronomicon was the beginning of Richard Stanley kind of like coming back into the public eye in a big way in the States. Because at every film festival after that, I'd turn around and like there's like you turn around this shower and there's Richard Stanley (laughs) with his wizard staff and his floppy Gandalf hat. Um, But he was everywhere. And I think it was largely he was pimping this project. He really, really wanted to get this going. And I think he realized that like this was the way to do it, to get out there and just start talking it up and eventually someone would do something all right well i I was planning to get to this later but why don't we just jump into the whole richard stanley backstory thing since we're (laughs) talking about him so um so yeah this was all new to me um i had never seen any of his movies before i just watched this lost um sorry this this color out of space and i was like and i'm a big fan of lovecraft's writing and i've not been very impressed by the film adaptations that i'd seen up till now but i thought color out of space was 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 really quite enjoyable um and so, yeah, so then I went and watched this this documentary I mentioned, Lost Soul. And I'm, I'm sure you all know a lot more about this than I do. But, um, yeah, if you take nothing away from nothing else away from this panel, you got to watch this documentary, Lost Soul. <laughs> this is like some of the craziest shit I've ever seen. Yeah, it's like the, the movie version of Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some pretty way. much. I, I always yeah. call it like a bitter version of Jodorowsky's Dune. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so just to explain. So, so basically what happens in this documentary is that Richard Stanley is this up and coming indie filmmaker with a great reputation. And his lifelong dream is to adapt, um, uh, HG Wells's novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau. And he has all these ideas about how to do it. He's written a screenplay. The screenplay is great. He's collaborated with a bunch of big name screenwriters and he's gotten this artist to, to do all these, um, all this concept art that's just, you know, jaw droppingly amazing. And they, um, the studio green lights it for something like an $8 million budget or something. And then somehow I even forget somehow, um, Marlon Brando gets attached to it and that increases the budget a lot. And then Val Kilmer gets attached to it. And I think that increases the budget even more. And then both those guys turn out to be unbelievably difficult to work with. And what a the, surprise. And the, <laughs> and the project like, implodes. Um, and let me just, let me just say, so then Richard Stanley ends up getting kicked off the project and is supposed to be flown back to Hollywood, but kind of goes AWOL and is just wandering around. This is in Australia, right? And, um, and then later on, some cast members from the film find him like meditating out in the wilderness somewhere and invite him to come back. And he's, he's supposed to be banned from the set, but he kind of dresses up as one of the dog men because <laughs> since it's the island of Dr. Moreau and ends up kind of infiltrating the set and just hanging out. And it's just this crazy, crazy story. So, um, I don't know. Does anyone, Grady, do you want to, is there anything you want to add, add to that? Yeah. I mean, I was a huge Richard Stanley fan, uh, when I saw Hardware, which I think was 1990, which is a really, you know, it's funny. It was a Miramax film and it really got buried and hasn't had the afterlife it should have because of that. It's an amazing, amazing science fiction movie. And one of the things that's so great about it is, um, that it's very, um, It really takes a hammer to the form. I mean, it's one of those movies where everything falls apart. Like, like the hero falls apart. You know, the guy who's supposed to come riding to the rescue just drops too much acid that night and is useless. Like, it's, it's just such a good 
sci-fi movie and, and really smart and very genre. And then he did a movie called Dust Devil, which I really admire. It's a really hallucinatory kind of serial killer, South African movie, a little like The Hitcher. It's just a woman picks up a hitchhiker. He's a quasi-mystical serial killer like Rucker Hauer is. Um, and it's visually stunning. It's not as satisfying as hardware, but good. And then Richard Stanley sort of vanished even before Moreau. I mean, Moreau came and he really vanished after that, but he had a hard time after Dust Devil because he got so involved with fighting with Miramax over the cuts of the movie. Um, but he also made some really, really great documentaries. Early in his career, he made this documentary, I think, called Voice of the Moon, where he went and lived with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan during um, when they were fighting the Soviets and uh, was embedded with them. And then he did this one. He did this other one. I can't remember what it's called about Nazi occultism, which is pretty boring. But he did this really incredible movie. And if you can find a way to see it, maybe it's on YouTube or something called uh white darkness where he went to haiti to do a documentary about um voodoo and um haitian voodoo and he while he was there that was when america invaded haiti um and so it turns into this documentary about sort of the americans coming to haiti and this religious tradition and the footage he gets is amazing that people would let him shoot this i mean just a lot of possession rituals, a lot of like really intimate religious moments coupled with, you know, Americans in flak jackets and camo with M16s dragging people out of their cars at checkpoints. It's really incredible. And I've always really liked his sensibility. Let me jump in there because that reminds me of another thing from Lost Soul is that he says apparently completely seriously that he knows some wizard in the UK who does some sort of like blood ritual or something to help get the movie greenlit. I mean, I couldn't even like begin to like itemize <laughs> all the crazy shit in this documentary, but um, yeah, well, I mean, he's one of those people like Alan Moore or like Grant Morrison who really has like a system of magic worked out that he believes works and, and is actualized in the world. Yeah. See, yeah he has this other documentary a little more recent called the other world. And that's about the town where he lives now, because after being rejected by Hollywood, he moved to a haunted monastery in the Pyrenees Mountains in France called Montsigur, which was the site of like a Templar night execution, like 200 knights were executed there. And he's seen ghosts like on multiple occasions. And there's not one. I mean, it really could be like, like forget Tiger King, like go watch these documentaries because <laughs> there's not one but two geomancers who say that they are sitting on the portal to hell and to protect from hell and warn people away. One of these geomancers has this chain link fence outside his house that's just pasted with VHS cover copies of like Lucio Fulci movies. Does anyone I mean, know? <laughs> does anyone know how he kind of like went from all the stuff we're saying to get back into making movies? Because this movie has a, you know, it's like a twelve million dollar budget or something. Like, how did he? Does anyone know how he kind of like came back and got got people to trust him with making a movie again and stuff like that? He was working. Grady can maybe speak about. He might know a little bit more about it, but I know he was making some short films. Uh, short fiction films as well, uh, part of like horror anthology series overseas. Yeah. Also, it's a Spectre Vision movie, which I think is, um, Frodo's company. Um, yes. 
Yeah, and so um, Elijah Wood is big on the genre film circuit, like film festival circuit. Like he goes to Fantastic Fest in Austin and sometimes Fantasia. And and so he's probably, you know, and one of the things about this circuit is you run into the same people again and again and you all get drunk a lot. And so, <laughs> you know, everyone's sort of meeting each other and, and dealing with each other and hanging out with each other. So I have a feeling that that was a connection that got forged on that circuit. Um, and I think the financier behind it is RLJE, who are a company out of LA who are kind of crazy. Like, <laughs> as long as something's within a certain budget range, they're like, yeah, sure. We'll go, go for it. Um, they're, they're, they're the people behind satanic panic. Um, so they're, they're, they're good guys because they just feel like if the budget makes sense for the model they've worked out, they're a little like Blumhouse, although less sort of, con- they have less control over the content than Blumhouse does. But they kind of feel like, okay, if you're going to bring it in at this budget and you can make it work, we can do enough foreign pre-sales to make that work. So sure, do it. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, I mean, I can't speak to exactly why, but I, I would be shocked that. Uh, if the success of Lost Soul, because when it hit, I mean, a lot of people are talking about it. And, you know, he is certainly portrayed in a more sympathetic light than maybe the legends of what had happened to that movie you know, might have had previously, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. You know, because Brando and Kilmer really come off as the bad guys, as they should, based on, yes. you know, you know what, what we know about the movie now. So, I mean, I remember when that came out, people were like, oh, yeah, Richard Stanley. You know, I remember him. Yeah. He's cool. And, oh, man, look at this. uh you know, no new, uh, no, uh, you know, publicity is bad publicity kind of thing. I mean, I don't think it's a surprise that, you know, within a couple of years after that, you know, he's being, cause he is also clearly a very talented filmmaker. Um, that, you know, just being in the public eye, <laughs> even as the, you know, the, um, the Tiger King of, of film <laughs> in 2014. Oh, no. Um, maybe that's a bad metaphor, but I, I came up with it. So I'm going with it. Um, well, well, he, you know, he certainly definitely- had to help. He definitely comes across in the movie as highly intelligent and just some of the stuff like, yeah, that, that Brando would be like, you know, hadn't read the script and just insisted on like rewrite, you know, he's like, I don't, why, do, why, do we, why are we even making this movie? Like, this is stupid. Like, why are we making this horror movie? We shouldn't like just, and he just wanted to rewrite everything just on a whim and just seemed to be determined. It seems to sabotage the whole thing. And, and I Val think Kilmer going through his divorce and probably drug problems and just being an absolute bastard yeah and, and richard stanley was was still pretty young and you know i think at the time and, and not a, not a very experienced director and so just to deal with this whole situation i think would have driven anyone you know, like crazy you know right i mean he was what 30 years old at the start of filming if it was 1996 and um yeah that's a little bit young or you know imagine being a 30 year old and trying to deal with marlon brando <laughs> and val kilmer in asshole mode yeah. So, Paul, were you? Um, what did you kind of think going into Color Out of Space specifically? Is it a story that you're in- interested in? Um, so, I'm not a huge Lovecraft like reader. You know, I've read sort of the canon stuff, but I'm certainly not someone who sort of devours all things Lovecraft. But the Color Out of Space is my favorite short story of his. I think uh, maybe because it has the least amount of uh, Cthulhu. Uh, I mean, I feel like it's that story is a little bit more different than his other um, pieces. But, you know, I tried to go in, or I went into the movie as blind as I could, you know, short of knowing about Richard Stanley, but like I avoided, you know, seeing any early stills or, um, or, you know, when the trailer came out, et cetera. So, no, I, I, I liked the movie, you know, I had some issues with it. Um, 
but overall, I thought, I mean, just visually stunning movie, first and foremost. Um, and, uh, you know, in the atmosphere from frame one, I mean, there is some humor uh, sprinkled in throughout, uh, some very oddball humor, which helps, I think, cut it a little bit from just being like this um, almost oppressive sort of, you know, dread vibe to it. Um, I don't know. I don't know how far you want me to talk yeah, about. Well, yeah, that's that's good. Let me jump in there because yeah, yeah the, the basic premise of the story, if you don't know, is that um, there's a farm and this, um, you know, meteorite lands, which is sort of pulsating with this strange color that's unlike any color that anyone's ever seen before, and it kind of poisons the land and the water and causes weird mutations and causes people to go crazy. And in the Lovecraft story we kind of hear this sort of secondhand and it, uh, these events unfold over like a year or something. Um, and so this is a lot different because it's set in modern times and the uh, it's, it concerns this family and it all happens over like 48 hours or something. I'm not sure exactly. Um, but that's, that's basically the setup. Um, so how about Teresa? Did you, uh, how, what was your kind of initial uh, response to the movie? I really enjoyed it. I thought, it was very beautiful to look at. I loved um, the wash of colors in it. You know, I mean, it's called Color Out of Space. You want to be feeling that unearthliness. And yeah, visually, it really struck me with that. I enjoyed the performances, especially um, I thought Jolie Richardson as the mom was really good. Uh also thought it was interesting that her name was Teresa. So I get to hear Nicholas Cage be like, Teresa, dinner's ready. Teresa, come downstairs. <laughs> um, that gave me a little kick. Uh, That's not your ringtone. Yeah, just, it might be my ringtone now. <laughs> um, it was really interesting because watching it, you know, of course, Mandy was in my mind because it's another really psychedelic Nicholas Cage horror movie where he goes kind of extra in it. But Colorado space is a very different kind of vibe to it. Um, I, what I really liked about it also was the addition of Lavinia, the teenage daughter. Um, she wasn't a character that was in the story. She was added specifically for the movie and kind of harkening back to some other Lovecraft, like little in jokes there, other characters in, in that canon. But I liked that she was like this teenage goth chick and that for me, watching her react to this Richard Stanley Lovecraft Nicolas Cage mashup was really satisfying. And there were moments where it was very subtle and just carefully chosen, which I thought was really nice. Um, you know, specifically with Teresa, who is, you know, she's the mom and you could tell like this, the Gardner family escaped the city after Teresa had uh, survived about with breast cancer and had a mastectomy so already they're kind of facing this malignancy in all of their relationships and it kind of sets the tone for everything that happens and Nicolas Cage as Nathan Gardner feeling like this big failure that can't help his family and I thought everything kind of hinged on that and built on that really well for me so that's something that stuck out it's interesting you mentioned Mandy because Mandy, the whole movie is sort of pink saturated just as a stylistic choice, basically. And they kind of take that same aesthetic to this one. But here it kind of makes sense because there is this color out of space that's being represented by this sort of, you know, luminescent pink uh, in the movie. Yeah, 
And it reminded you know, Colorado space also reminded me, you know, yeah, I keep saying Mandy, but I think it's probably closest to Annihilation, uh, which was based on the Jeff Vandermeer novel. Um, definitely similar color palette, the shimmer, the beauty and ecstasy of this horrible mutation. Yeah, and I definitely want to, I, there's a lot to say, I think, about the drawing parallels between this and Annihilation that I definitely want to get to. Um, but just sticking with the characters for a second, Grady, do you want to jump in here? Like, did you like this family? Like, what did you think of the cast in this movie? You know, I, I well, I mean, first of all, what is the Colorado space? Is it mauve? Is it violet? Is it a lavender kind of puce. pinky thing? Puce? <laughs> no, um, puce. I feel like it's a little light to be puce. Uh, yeah. Eggplant? A little light for that. Um, I thought the movie was okay. I, you know, it's more to do with me than the movie, but I was really kind of staggered by the lack like the lack of emotional connection i had with the movie and i had i I really like richard stanley and i've always liked his stuff because i feel like it's a lot more feeling than thinking and um like he's in his other movies willing to really just drop a plot if he wants to do something that makes emotional sense to him like conduct a a cult ritual and you know, I had read that Richard uh, Stanley's mom used to read Lovecraft to him, especially Color Out of Space, and that when she was dying of cancer, I think in like 2013 or so, he read Lovecraft to her um, as she was dying. And it's a it's a story about people who have this disease that is changing them, and it's unstoppable, and it's killing them. And especially the stuff he does, I think it's Jolie Richardson who plays the mom, um, yeah. with her. And I was like, oh, wow. And then it just didn't, I, it did, I felt like it had so much plot it needed to deal with. It didn't take the time to really, for me, really go into that. And that kind of bummed me out. And, you know, it's like Mandy isn't a movie I want to marry, but I liked Mandy more because like emotionally it was like really feverish and intense. Like um even to the point where the story feels a little sparse in Mandy because it's all about like feelings and emotions. And this I thought was so light on feelings for me that I was kind of bummed. And then I had the Nick Cage problem, which is like, I keep waiting for a director. Like, I like Nick Cage. Like, I'm a big fan of Con Air, and I, and I thought he was great in Mandy. But like, I keep waiting for a director to do something that really gets behind whatever this wall is Nick Cage has between him and the world. Um And it's like, I don't know if anyone ever saw this movie, JCVD, a few years ago. It's this Belgian movie. Um, but it's uh, about a, a bunch of guys who take a, a, a post office, which also double his banks, I guess, in Belgium, hostage. And um, in the middle of it is Jean-Claude Van Damme. And the movie stars Jean-Claude Van Damme, and he plays Jean-Claude Van Damme. And he's, like, having a custody fight with his kids, and he's hard up for cash. And, and it just really punctures his mythology and in the middle of the movie like apropos of nothing jcvd turns to the camera and he delivers this monologue to the audience that's essentially i mean it literally actually says i know you all think i'm a joke i'm a joke i'm a punchline i i spent my entire life treating women like shit and doing all this cocaine my kids think i'm a clown they're embarrassed by me and it's this moment in the middle of this movie where he really Talk science about what it's like to be him and how he knows how we see him. And 
I, I keep, and then, you know, since then he's made like 15 direct to video crappy movies, but like, he has that moment that he was willing to go there somewhere really personal. And I keep waiting for Nick Cage to go there, you know, like, and he'll do it in interviews from time to time. But I always, I was really thinking Richard Stanley would be the director who could get Nick Cage to stop being a performer who was making an audience sort of having an insider chuckle and make him a performer again, who really connected with people emotionally and was able to sort of like, a grapple with who we all think he is versus who he is. I don't know. Maybe I expected too much from a movie about, you know, mutant butterflies and, and cancer <laughs> monsters getting shotgunned. Yeah. I don't, does um, anyone want a response to what yeah, you're saying there? Uh, I, I just wanted to jump in because uh, the way Teresa described the family dynamics was, I mean, oh, I want to watch that movie. <laughs> I mean, even though that is what actually happened in the movie, I never felt that connection because I think – the, the, the family, a little bit of what Grady was saying, never felt grounded to me. And I do think part of the reason is, um, because of Cage's performance, which I much, I enjoyed much more in Mandy than I did in this. I, I think it was a really bad decision to have Cage do like the two voices that he does in the movie. And I think one of the voices is supposed to be his dad, who was obviously like an overbearing, you know, terrible presence in his life. Um, and it just, I don't know, for me, it just felt really flat, it just felt like really goofy. Um, now, it's sort of in holding with, I guess, sort of the weird humor that's there. You know, obviously, like, on the edge of the of the farm's property is, uh, is it Cheech Marin? Or, no, Chong, Tommy Chong. Chong. Tommy, Tommy Chong. Chong. Yeah, that's yep. living there, you know, which I appreciated. You know, so those moments of humor, I think, were important. But, I don't know, every time Cage sort of did, like, his Cage thing in this movie, which was going back and forth between these two personalities, it just, I don't know, any, any chance for me to have, like, a, an emotional connection to this family, um, sort of cut it out for me you know and i think know the different i think the difference in mandy you know and i i don't want to like uh i don't say that i know this for sure but in talking to some people who may know more than i do about like how the movie was made i get the sense that cage's performance in mandy was really made slash helped by editing like i get the sense that panos let him just go wild you know and he was able to splice together all these things like he i mean cage never really has like a big monologue in Mandy, or if he does, there aren't that many, but he has to carry a lot of scenes in this movie in the color out of space with, you know, just him speaking and the camera doesn't pull away. It's, you know, Richard sort of leaves it there. So it is sort of dependent upon his, his performance. So to me, I mean, I, I, I really liked the movie. I was definitely affected by it. I was totally skeeved out <laughs> by uh, the death of the mom and the, and the son. Like I found that really hard to watch in the time that we're living in. Um, but my, my biggest sort of drawback or negative to the movie is Cage's performance. Okay, well, let's, let's go back to Teresa. Teresa, what do you think about this? Yeah. Oh, I would totally agree. The, the performance that Nicolas Cage gives in this, yeah, the two voices, like in the beginning, like I said, I felt um, an empathy for his character because, again, it's just like the two of them, like, him and his wife are both like fleeing the city. They kind of failed at the city life. She's like, um, what, like a, she does something with finance over the phone, like s selling stocks or some, some nebulous thing that sounds like she's basically a telemarketer. And he's a man who got sucked into like the future of alpaca farming. <laughs> like who, who does that? Like people who fall for like, Herbalife scheme, stuff like that. And he's moved his whole family on this failure of a 
dream and it's not working and it's obvious and his family knows and he knows that his family knows he's a big failure. So in the beginning, I was inclined to have some sympathy for him, but I super agree. Like the two voices thing, like why his dad sounds like Donald Trump on an Adderall bender, complete <laughs> with like the pursed lips and the hands, you know, yeah. opening and closed. Like it was too Trumpy for me. And it, it definitely was like, I want to see the behind-the-scenes footage of recording this. What was it like where, you know, and that's interesting you talk about Panos and editing his performance in Mandy because here it's like, did anyone tell Nicolas Cage, dial it back a bit or maybe not the right choice for this as it gets towards the end? All right. Well, so you know, it's wanna, funny. I was. I don't want oh, to spend too much time on Nick Cage's performance because we have a lot more stuff to right. talk yeah. about. Um, but does anyone want to say, uh, like, because I, I, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit. So I'm just curious if anyone has anything, like, some reasons that people should watch it. Like, do you, do you think that they're like, what does it have going for it? Well, I would like to say that I do have a friend who, when her mom decided to start her life over, she started an ostrich ranch. Um, so I feel like if someone's thinking of starting over, an exotic animal farm is a way to go. And this definitely gives you a taste for alpaca farming and what the daily life is like. <laughs> uh, for me, I like, I thought this was just like a fun midnight movie meets a planetarium laser show, you know, very much like Mandy, like, Maybe you want to partake of some illicit substances. Richard Stanley <laughs> would definitely be the goth shaman director you want to guide you on this metaphysical journey. And for someone who likes that kind of gothy aesthetic with a heavy dose of metaphysics and weirdness, I thought it was really fun. You know, I had a, I had a good time watching it again, um, even when I was sober. <laughs> I will say there was a, a lot bigger dose of body horror that I was not expecting. I mean, because again, I tried to avoid most of the description of the movie. I just wanted to go in blind to it. So, you know, I went in sort of expecting what Teresa had described, like, oh, you know, it's Richard Stanley would be this mystical, weird, you know, acid trip of a kind of movie. But man, uh, the horror, he, he, especially in that third act, gets ramped up. Uh, I was, was surprised by how viscerally affected I was by you know, one of the transformations or co-transformations, I really should say, that happens yes. in the film. Yeah. And the mother-son stuff, I thought, was the best stuff in the movie. Like that whole bit with them and, and the monstrous transformation. That, to me, was like, it felt really emotional and, and grounded. Yeah, that really struck out with me, like stuck out to me, sorry, um, with her being almost in ecstasy, saying like, oh, my God, oh, my God, in pain and disbelief over again you you felt that i also really loved the music in in this mm. movie it was uh colin stetson who worked on hereditary and red dead redemption 2 and i thought it was beautiful drony uh really fun stuff really good atmosphere yeah well let's let's come back to the parallels between this and annihilation because i was i was telling you all over um email that annihilation was my favorite movie of the last decade uh, i really really love it and this is like, you know, I don't want to say like the poor man's annihilation, but it's <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it, it's sort of like a goofier version of annihilation. But there are a lot of parallels. And I think there is actually there's a whole like subgenre that's come out of Lovecraft's story, The Color Out of Space, 
where there where somehow the natural world has been corrupted and mutated um by some sort of cosmic influence or some otherworldly presence that's um caused logic and sense to break down and is driving people mad and stuff like that um so let's um, if i just scan my list here i mean phase four obvious example yeah uh, they remain um i mean i guess the endless um yeah but there's a there's a bunch there's a there's a whole bunch like that i mean and and there's a lot of especially at the end at the end of this movie when they're uh the 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 color presence kind of gets sucked up into the sky in this giant maelstrom and lavinia kind of disintegrates or you know she's kind of become absorbed in it and she disintegrates and um you know there's all sorts of like um kaleidoscopic patterns and things it was really really giving me flashbacks to annihilation and so um so i loved all that stuff um and i mean i would definitely recommend you watch annihilation first if you haven't seen it and then if you want to watch as paul was saying a little bit more gory goofy version (laughs) of it uh you could check this out but i I thought it was a lot of fun overall um teresa is there anything else you want to say about comparing this to annihilation well, I mean, I think you nailed it with um, just the horrible beauty of nature mutated beyond what you're expecting. I mean, there were definite scenes within the Colorado space and annihilation with the flowers, you know, just flowers looking wrong, but so beautiful. And um, everything like the alpaca here was we had al- alpacas in the Colorado space in annihilation. I think it was really the bear. <laughs> the bear scene and both are really like gooey and gross in in very different ways. Um so yeah, I think there there's just really something that resonates about nature being horribly corrupted. Right. And also the the endings, you know, the, it, where it seems like the alien presence has gone away or been destroyed, but then we know at the end of the movie that it's still there and it's, you know, it's it's inevitable. You can't you know, once the corruption has has manifested, it, it's going to spread everywhere sooner or later. And so, in the color out of space, we we find out that um, they end up flooding the whole valley where this farmhouse is and creating a reservoir. And you just know, you know, uh, particularly the the main character or sort of the the um, frame story character Wade, you know, who, who's a hydrologist. He's like, this cannot be a good idea. You know, making the drinking yeah, water drink for the, the whole water. northeastern <laughs> seaboard, you know, uh, over this, this, this corruption. Um, so life Paul, finds a way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Paul, what did you, you, you just said you watched, uh, Annihilation last night, right? Yeah. I, I had read the novel. So I don't know. Sometimes I have great lag time between reading the book and then wanting to see the movie. No, I agree. I mean, they're both a lot of similarities. It's funny watching both fairly recently, even though sort of, the cosmic aspect is not the same, but in terms of some of the visuals and some of how, you know, life absorbing other life, you know, uh, scenes from both movies definitely reminded me of the thing. I think in Colorado space, obviously oh, yeah. the alpaca scene was very much, uh, I, I hope so an homage to, to, yeah, to, to the dog kennel. Um, no, I think Annihilation is, you know, a more successful movie, but I also think, you know, if I'm always going to be the guy who gives a little criticism, I guess that's, what I do now. Uh, I feel like there was a similar, not, not as difficult, but I, I, I felt Annihilation was a little bit emotionally cold as well, which I don't know as, as a horror writer and fan, um, 
I, I don't write science fiction very often. I, I don't know. It's just me looking outside of my own genre to that one. That's like that. That's got to be hard to achieve, because you know, in a science fiction movie, you, you need to have that the big ideas, the big plot. What's you know, the science fictional aspect of it. You know, it's it gets hard to bring in that human element to it. Um, you know, I know that's also like a personal thing that I, I always tend to gravitate toward the characters. So again, I think if we were to describe the relationship between Oscar Isaac's character and um, Natalie Portman's character, describe their arc. It's like, oh, wow, that could be really powerful. But I never bought like their relationship. And, you know, so later on in the movie where you find out it is really sort of fractured, uh, it made sense. But there, I, I never felt like that emotional, like, ah, you know. Which I yeah. kind of wanted, especially when, like, whoever it was that came back for her. <laughs> I, I mean, that's just an amazing ending, a very cool, ambiguous ending, too, with their embrace at the end. Um, I just wish, like, to me, I mean, I think it's an excellent movie. I just wish there was a little bit more connection emotionally I mean, for me. I mean, I, I hear you. I mean, it worked for me, but I feel like with cosmic horror, it's sort of, and Lovecraft in general, it's sort of inherently right. a um, intellectual, cerebral sort of experience. It's not a sort of, like quote-unquote human kind of experience you know and right. i feel like so many adaptations of lovecraft fall flat for me because they're not cerebral you know because they rely on the same sort of bag of tricks of all horror movies of titillation and gore and you know action and you know jump scares and all this kind of stuff that just to me is so at odds with lovecraft's whole aesthetic right um and so, that's so i guess of, the the issue though is if if, if you're going to put that into the story you know it, um, I feel like it needs to work. You know what I mean? Like, you know, if we're going to talk about phase four later, there's no emotional connection to be had. Um, you know, and I wouldn't say phase four is a better movie than Annihilation because it's, it's clearly not. Um, but, you know, I, I don't come away from that movie feeling, oh, you know, there was no emotional connection because, you know, at some point, I think both of those movies asked the viewers for, you know, for that connection. Um, when you're right, like the bigger ideas about, you know, the cosmic horror are infinite, are, our infinitesimal smallness compared to the vast, you know, greatness in this case of the, you know, this cosmic eco, um, you know, metamorphosis that's happening. But anyway. Well, well, since you mentioned it, let's just explain. So phase four is this movie from like the seventies. Yeah. 74, yeah. Where there's, yeah, some sort of celestial event happens that kind of somehow mutates ants in the Arizona desert and increases their hive minds kind of potential to make them super intelligent. And then these, uh, human scientists end up basically battling for survival against this super intelligent ant colony. And um, Paul, when we had you on to talk about um, Desirina Boscovich's book, Lost Transmissions, you had actually right. written a whole essay about phase four, a sort of uh, right. neglected classic. Um, so uh, th that's how you feel about the film, that it's it's sort of an overlooked gem or. Yeah, it's both like a, a overlooked gem. And also I think it's, I think it's influences sort of, out, it's bigger than it's sort of bigger than the movie if that makes sense um like even annihilation like in, in the third act at the very end that almost ant-like hole that you know portman crawls into i mean that's uh, that visual really struck me as being as the same as <laughs> you know i'm not saying he lifted it from phase four but i mean that that scene from phase four is pretty iconic toward the end where um murphy's character goes into the you know the giant hole in the desert the giant ant hole in the desert you know, where there is a personal transformation down there. I mean, there's potentially another body double, you know, depending on how you read the ending of phase four. So, um, you know, if we talk about they remain later, the, the, in they remain, which is set in upstate New York, 
uh, the tense that the two scientists or the scientists are using. Look, and just like the geodesic dome in phase four. And I know that Laird yeah, Barron, yeah. the writer Laird Barron has talked often about the influence of that movie on his work. Um, I know, and similar to Richard Stanley, like the history behind phase four is really kind of wild. It's Saul Bass's only film that he's directed. You know, for years he, he was a art designer. He made all these like iconic, famous movie posters, many of them for Hitchcock. And if you want a deep dive, lose yourself internet argument for people who still maintain that Saul Bass actually directed, uh, storyboarded and directed the shower scene in Psycho, which I think has been debunked. But like for a while, Saul Bass himself was for whatever reason saying, oh, yeah, no, I did that. <laughs> um, well, sorry, what were you going to say? Uh, well, well, just when you talk about the influence of Phase 4, I don't know this, but I would just watching this, you know, m one of my favorite stories of all time is George R. R. Martin's Sand Kings. Oh. And so going back and watching Phase 4, I'm like, I think there's a very good chance that George R. R. Martin saw this movie and it was kind of like in his mind when when Sand, the Sand Kings idea came together. But that's just that's just speculation on my part. Right. Um, but so I want to get back to this thing I was saying about how a lot of the Lovecraft adaptations kind of fall flat for me because they have the titillation and the gore and the, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so that's kind of my reaction to, um, the Stuart Gordon films. Um, so that would be reanimator from beyond and Dagon. And I know Grady, you were saying that you, you're, you're, you're somewhat of an admirer of Stuart Gordon, right? Is that, is that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I like uh, Stuart Gordon. I, I thought a lot. for sure you were going to say, Grady, you're a, you're an, <laughs> a, de a, a devotee of titillation and gore. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I am that too. Um, yeah, I really like Stuart Gordon. You know, I think, um, one of the things that's interesting about him is, you know, he's a theater director primarily. Like that's what he comes out of is, um, the Chicago theater tradition, like Steppenwolf and all that. And he ran his own company with a lot of those actors. Um, and you know, he did the first production of some mammoth play one or two, I think. And even at the end of his career, you know, he passed away just a few weeks ago. Um, but even at the end of his career, he was directing theater mostly. Um, and um, one of his plays, I believe it was the play Stuck, which is based on the true story of a ER nurse who was coming back from a late shift. And she hit a homeless guy with her car who got stuck halfway through the windshield of her car and was bleeding out. And she just drove home and parked the car in her garage and just he died over the course of three days. She just didn't know what to do. And it's a really, really, I think it's a 2007 movie called Stuck with Mina Savari and uh, Stephen Ray. That's really good. Um, but so Stuart Gordon comes out of this theater tradition. So his movies are all bigger and more stylized and more, um, you know, everyone's really giving, they're playing to the balcony and um, the colors are playing to the balcony, the cinematography, the special effects. And one of the things that I think is hard to remember is, Reanimator is not called Reanimator. His, I think it's 84. It's called HP Lovecraft's Reanimator. And that's what it said on the video box and on the posters. And, you know, that was the introduction to Lovecraft for a lot of people. And I think that if you're going to put a moment where Lovecraft really went mainstream, it's around there because that was the same year that the first, um, unfucked up editions of Lovecraft stories came out uh, from Arkham House because before that it had been the August Derleth 
edits, um, which were really bastardized. And S.T. Joshi oversaw a restoration of the stories to their original form. And that was when they came out. And a lot of libraries started picking them up because it was also hardcovers. Um, and they were widely available. And so it was between those two things, I think, that really put Lovecraft sort of starting to edge his way into the mainstream in the early 80s. Um, and um, the thing that I really, really love about Reanimator is it's a movie about Jeff Combs plays a scientist who can't deal with people. He can't, he's, he's socially awkward to a pathological degree and he especially can't handle or interact with women. And so of course he's trying to come up with a formula that will restore dead people to life because then you don't need women for reproduction. You're just restoring dead people. And his inability to connect with people is what drives this entire movie. Um, just same way I think that Lovecraft's inability to connect with people on some <laughs> level uh, drove a lot of his fiction. Um, and From Beyond, which was the next one Stuart Gordon did based on the H.P. Lovecraft story From Beyond, I think it's called, um, you know, what he is about like stimulating your pineal gland and then you can see these monsters that exist all around us, but you usually can't see them. But when you see them, they see you because like a lot of Lovecraft, it's about being seen and how horrifying that is and how you'll die if something sees you. And, um, but what it's really interesting about is in the movie, Stuart Gordon has this thing where when you get your pineal gland stimulated, you really, really want to fuck. Like you really want to have sex. And it's like, it's such a cool thing to add to Lovecraft, you know, like, cause Lovecraft certainly probably never in his life wanted to really have sex. And, um, <laughs> and to, to have like seeing these creatures makes you want to bone down. And, and, and the creatures in the movie are so goopy and physical and tactile. It's really like kind of great. See, Teresa, have you seen any of these movies? Reanimator from Beyond and Dagon? Oh, oh my gosh. Reanimator. Yes. Many times over, you know, I came to Stuart Gordon probably from being a Peter Jackson fan. Um, you know, around the same, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Around the same time I was watching stuff like Dead Alive, uh, or Brain Dead, whichever, um, I don't know what people call it now. Um, you know, that very practical FX, goopy, gross, bloody, pus filled wet yeah just everything just feels so like visceral and real but there's this humor to it and this madcap sense of like reveling in this kind of filth in a way um that i really loved reanimator uh around the same time it hit a lot of those same buttons uh, but with like a nastier tone to it and as a matter of fact i i've met jeffrey combs at a bunch of horror conventions back in the day and my mom actually has an autograph from jeffrey combs it's a still from reanimator from with him and dr hill's head and it says like to Anne marie uh life is pain or something like that you know and it's <laughs> above <laughs> her vanity so every day my mom gets you know does her makeup underneath jeffrey combs's autograph yeah, it, it, it hangs in a place of pride because yeah my, my mom watches a lot of horror movies too and we would just laugh about like uh the severed head is giving head i mean that joke <laughs> i mean that's one of like the famous scene from reanimator i mean when you think of a movie you think of one of the most infamous oh, yeah. oral sex mm -hmm. scenes <laughs> 
on film. Well, it's true. I you mean, know, he added sex to a lot of Lovecraft. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll just never forget how horrified I was by that scene. Um, yeah, you know. Um, yeah, well. Oh, well, it's interesting. Let, 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 oh, let me just jump in there because, yeah, you're you're right, Grady. That um, from what I I don't think there's there's certainly no sex in any Lovecraft stories. I don't think there's any romance, and I think there's barely any female characters. Like maybe a the, couple. The thing on the doorstep is about as close as you get, and that's really stretching it. So so yeah, so it is a huge departure from Lovecraft to 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 have all the the titillation and everything. I mean, I'm coming from the perspective where I read Lovecraft's writing first and then I, you know, I was like, "Oh, there's adaptations of it. Let's go check those out." And then I was like, "Oh, oh this yeah. is not it at all." Yeah. Um, but, um, but you know, the interest Yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Grady. No, I was going to say one of the interesting things about the Stuart Gordon movies and I I don't know if this is I just don't know Lovecraft well enough. Um, but like I feel like, Teresa, when you're talking about, like, you know, this sort of punk spirit and the Stuart Gordon's things and, and like, the Peter Jackson stuff, I mean, I think there is a direct line from, like, all this wet special effects and the goopiness and the grotesqueness to people like Gigi Allen, you know, throwing his poop at the audience or, you know, punks making themselves bleed or a little kid showing you his boogers. It's like there's this idea of, well, it's all just stuff our body makes. Like, what's the repulsion? Why? Why are we so repulsed by something that we walk around with inside of us 24 hours a day? Why are we so grossed out just when someone shows it to us? Like, why do we pretend a lot of our body doesn't exist? I want to get Paul back in here. Paul, what did sure. you think of the Stuart Gordon movies? So um, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but, it, you know, both Peter Jackson and the earliest Gordon movies. And, you know, I think, you know, the success you know, in terms of horror fans of Evil Dead, I mean, I remember when I first yeah. saw Reanimator, I saw it on HBO. It was probably like the year after it had whatever limited theatrical release <laughs> it had. Um, you know, it felt to me as like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is in the family of Evil Dead, et cetera. Um, that's the only one of Gordon's movies that I watched, and it has, you know, uh, so I won't say too much about it, but I agree with Grady and Teresa. It has this undeniable ener- madcap energy to it. Um, it's funny, I never watched the other ones, partly because my in the eighties, my brother was the gore hound. <laughs> and so I like part of my identity was being like, not the gore hounds more sort of like the subtle horror. So we didn't, we didn't cross our streams very often <laughs> in the movies that we watched, but reanimator was one of them. Yeah. I, I love the movie. I just thought it was, it's like, man, I'd never really seen, I thought it sort of out evil dead at the evil dead in terms of just madcap energy. And don't forget that evil dead is all from the root of the Necronomicon, right, Necronomicon. Mortis. Yeah. yeah. So, so nobody is anyone, does anyone have any sympathy for my position of like, I love cosmic horror and I love movies like Annihilation that, you know, take themselves super seriously. And it's like, I feel like if, you know, in Annihilation, if there was like a scene where Natalie Portman got her clothes ripped off, you know, that would just completely undermine the whole movie, you know, and it's not because I don't like, um, or not because I have any objection to titillation and gore necessarily, but it just seems like there's a certain mood that you can get with cosmic horror that is, as I said, this more cerebral kind of atmosphere that's just, for me, completely oh. undone oh, by... Yeah, that, that's totally yeah. what I prefer now. You know, when I was a yeah. teenager, I definitely was all about the gore and, and the effects and, you know, uh, Richard Baker and Stan Winston were like, or Rob Bateen, rather, they were like my favorites. But, oh yeah, no, I, I agree there's... as 
a polish, I guess, and a sleekness to a lot of the more modern cosmic horror tales now that I that I do appreciate more. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even consider Reanimator um, and some of the other movies we were talking about as cosmic horror. I mean, because it's really <laughs> it's so enclosed. It's not about the cosmic. It's about really like the gore and the body horror and just the the sheer insanity of what's happening to this you know relatively small cast. Or opposed to the other films that we began this you know discussion talking about. Even though there was a small set of characters, you had the sense of vastness, uh, of vastation, as John Clute once uh, tried to describe, like a, um, you know, cosmic horror or a, or a larger horror. Yeah, well, well Reanimator kind of got just lumped in here because it's a Lovecraft adaptation. Yeah, but yeah. The, other, yeah. the other Stuart Gordon ones, like From Beyond, is definitely cosmic horror. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and Dagon is is pretty cosmic horror y. Um, yeah. From Beyond, it, if you haven't seen it, the premise is that there's this machine, and I guess maybe some mentioned a little bit earlier, but yeah, it makes the, the premise is that there's just like invisible monsters swimming around in the air all the time, and we can't see them or touch them, and they can't see or touch us. But if you turn this machine on, then it kind of merges the the worlds in this field, and and we can interact with each other. And so that's a that's a great cosmic core premise. I mean, yeah, uh, I wish the movie stuck, you know, did more with that premise. Uh, it kind of goes off on all sorts of other directions, but uh, it you know that one is definitely cosmic core for sure. Well, you know, it's funny, like you, you look at like cosmic horror versus Lovecraft, right? It's like, I can see a real connection between color out of space and annihilation. Also in like how Lovecraft writes color out of space, because color out of space is all letters and things being told to people. And that's the first two thirds of annihilation. I mean, the first two thirds of annihilation are people getting told about how terrible the zone is and how insane it is. And look at these studies we've done. Look at these numbers. And then they see evidence of things that have happened to other people in the zone and save for one like gator attack. And then they like see a video of stuff happening to other people. And it's like over halfway through the movie before stuff actually happens to them, which is very Colorado spacey. It's very 19th century. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel Colorado space is different from a lot of the other Lovecraft stories. It's more like an Algernon Blackwood kind of slow creep. Yeah. It always felt different to me too. Yeah. Like it's more about the atmosphere than the, the mythos and the explanation and I seem to remember less racism in it too. That could just be me. <laughs> well it's also like Lovecraft loves this thing of mashing together two alien things and you get some horrible monstrous result but the only in every single story the only way he can figure out how to do that is to have people have literal actual off-screen sex and then have mutant monster babies except for color out of space when it's just like you encounter this alien and maybe it is having sex with them it's so alien it's like just a color we don't know what it's doing um but just seeing it is enough to transform you i want to get back you know, paul mentioned this uh a movie they remain which is an adaptation of a short story by laird baron i had never seen this before um I guess, Paul, you uh, do you want to just like set this up because I I feel I feel like you know it or you know more sure. about it than I do. Um. So, well, the movie essentially, I mean, it's a very fairly you know a, uh, um quick plot to describe, I suppose. But uh, yeah, there were two scientists, and you know, I know it was filmed in northern uh, New York. I can't remember if that's the actual setting of the movie, but you know, they're by themselves in the woods and basically sort of. You know, as opposed to Annihilation, where they had some sort of, you know, comet land near the, or, or at the lighthouse, 
what they're what these two scientists are actually studying. Are there any like psychic scars left behind by this cult that murdered people? You know, that once lived in these woods, and they're trying to study. You know, did that sort of psychological trauma have any effect on the you know on the flora and fauna that's in that area because of you know certain stories or that you know that they're they're investigating? Uh, so much of the movie is just really sort of about the psychological freakout between these two characters. Um, you know, trying to figure out what's going on in this place. Um, so it's, you know, it's a very low budget movie. I think it was made for, geez, I don't know. Um, might've been 1 million, maybe less. Um, and I mentioned the, the visuals in terms of like the tents that the, the scientists are staying in. Um, look just like the geodesic dome from, you know, they remain and there's a lot of, I'm sorry, from from phase phase four. Yes. Um, and like phase four, you get to see a lot of shots of ants and other creatures in the woods. Um, I found it just very effective, very strange because you're always, you know, not quite sure what's going on, um, between the two characters, just as they're not quite sure what's happening or, you know, if they can trust each other. Well, well, and I thought this movie was pretty effective, especially within the constraints of its budget. But at the end, I felt like it left way more unanswered questions than would be ideal. I mean, because and obviously, I think a cosmic horror story has to end on some sort of note of mystery or the unexplained or something. Um, and so I feel like Annihilation, obviously, it has sort of a somewhat cryptic ending, but there's enough information there for you to put the pieces together. But I was pretty baffled, honestly, at the end of They Remain. And I'm just curious if other people had that same reaction. I haven't seen it. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, I, I've seen. I've, yeah, I definitely had that sense of ambiguity. It reminded. I guess in some way it left me with a similar feeling, even though this might be like wildly off the the mark. Uh, but another movie I find kind of in that vein is Picnic at Hanging Rock, which might not sound on the surface like something that would maybe be in a similar cosmic vein but i think it could fit it's a 1975 Mm. australian movie from peter weir about a bunch of schoolgirls who go missing at this rock this big black rock in australia and it's you know it they talk about this rock this location where the schoolgirl goes missing there are suicides time gets wonky it's like a weird circle and you know when they first pull up on this field trip to this rock it's like it looks like it was always waiting for us and that's kind of how i felt with the woods and they remain like you know paul had talked about like the scars of a traumatic event on a landscape and i think that's what a lot of cosmic horror could be a could be it's these uh shock waves that happen when something outside intrudes on our world and you could get an area X, you could get the color, you get that the cult and the weird time loop in something like they remain or the endless or picnic at hanging rock. It's always about an intrusion. And I thought they remain did that really well. And I loved um, William Jackson Harper as the lead in that. Um, again, another one before midsummer and before the good place it was really good in this. I mean, Paul, what do you think about my my feeling like this that the movie should have like the pieces should have come together at least a little bit more by the end? Oh, I mean, I I will, I will first freely admit that like I I would not be able to explain like in detail what you know what it was that happened or I mean I, you obviously know what happens at the end but like what does it mean fully? Um, 
But uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm okay with it. I mean, you're, I don't know. I do ambiguity a lot in my stuff, so I'm not going <laughs> to complain about someone else being ambiguous. But I love what uh, what Teresa just described. Uh, that that should be like the you know 25 to 30 second tagline of the whole discussion <laughs> um, of you know of what you know cosmic horror could be, or you know in the case of they remain, it's so, you know maybe it'd be more like temporal cosmic. You know, it's not the result from space uh, per se, but maybe you know it's time or it's you know, some sort of dimensional ripple rip that was caused by like, you know, this traumatic event that had happened, you know, in those woods. Um, I don't know, like a movie like that, like David, you're, you're clearly not in the, in the minority. Like if you were to read the reviews, there's a lot of people like the movie and there's probably more that you know, responded toward the end. Like he was like, I don't know what the fuck <laughs> happened. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Sometimes you know, you got to clearly you got to be in the mood for a little bit of like ambiguousness, and I don't know. Maybe it helped that I had read Laird's novelette first, which is called Thirty. So I kind of felt like already I knew the parameters of the story of what was happening, even though you know the the film and the novelette aren't the same. Yeah. So I haven't read that. So maybe I should read that, and uh, it'll uh, fill me in a little bit more. I wanted to mention. I thought it was interesting that you know this this new Color Out of Space movie is the latest in a long line of adaptations uh, going back to of, of the of Lovecraft story, The Colorado Space. So going back to 1965, we've got Die, Monster, Die, exclamation point. Uh, something tells me that's probably not great, but I haven't seen it. Uh, you've got The Curse from 1987, starring Will Wheaton. Uh, something <laughs> called Color from the Dark, 2008. And then there's one from 2010 called Die Farbe, which means the color in German. That's a German movie. And I thought that's, this one was interesting. I haven't watched the whole thing, but uh, it's a black and white movie. And the only color is the, the color out of space is, is, you know, the, is the only pink in a black and white movie. So I thought that was kind of cool. But one thing I thought was kind of interesting, Paul, is that Die Monster Die was originally filmed under the title, The House at the End of the World. Huh. And I was wondering if you might've ever heard of that before. You know, I've, I've, I know way back in my watching creature double feature days i know i've heard of die monster die and probably seen it but you know, just looking at it now on my screen it's like oh wow like the description is color out of space essentially um i have no memory of that original title though or of the house at the end in the world hmm. um see Teresa, were there any movies that you watched for this panel that you hadn't seen before um actually uh oh the void i had been uh meaning to get to it for the longest time hmm. <laughs> i what was what was that yeah how how was your how was your encounter with the void um it i'm sorry i wish i had something uh more prepared to say about it i i thought it was a I like the concept of it. You know, I'm I'm always down as we established the last time the three of us got together or rather the four of us got together on the panel. I'm always down for a good cult in a movie. And you know, it was interesting watching it for this and looking at those amazing shots of outer space or out of time and perception, which I thought were really cool. Uh the story itself was you know, a pretty standard horror movie. It didn't leave me with a lot of uh, lingering questions. I, I felt it was pretty self-contained. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's worth noting since since we all did the cult and horror panel uh, a month or so ago. 
there's a lot of overlap between cosmic yeah. horror and cults mm. and horror. Because uh, if you've got something cosmic going on, there's a pretty good chance some people are going to start noticing it and worshiping it <laughs> or something. Um, did you have and and also yeah, I mean a lot of the movies have you know shots of the cosmos or like shots of like the the sun, except it's like the colors are inverted and there's like energy flowing out of it or something. I mean you you Pyramids, see stuff like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you see, and which I think is cool, the sort of trippy imagery in a lot of these things. Um, I mean, great. It seems like you you. Um, there was there was sort of like a a, a loaded your question to Teresa was loaded. no no <laughs> I know, no I just you know the voids the voids <laughs> one of those movies that I no 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 the voids just one of those movies that like I so thought it was not going to be what it was and like it starts out so well and then it just gets lost in that basement um, and it's yeah. like I really like those filmmakers I like their other films the effects were so well done the beginning is so off kilter and then like literally the last. 35 minutes i i realized it like i was kind of half watching you know what i mean like it was just like it just lost me and so and i i haven't met many people who don't feel similarly and haven't met many people who don't feel like it's such a shame because it feels like all the pieces were there for those guys to really knock it out of the park and that they were capable of doing it and for some reason it just didn't gel that time which sometimes happens well, now hearing you talk about it like that makes me remember how i felt the first time i watched event horizon which was, oh um, yeah, you know, which was another movie that was on the list. And I saw that one in the theater, completely cold, had no idea what I was walking into, never saw a trailer. And I was scared shitless. You know, that's the 1990s movie about Lawrence Fishburne. And, and again, Sam Neill, Sam Neill keeps popping up in these cosmic horror things. <laughs> and they're literally in outer space and the, you know, the first to, collect this ship that disappeared and came back and the crew goes and finds messages and it's horrifying like for me it was absolutely horrifying in the beginning like I think it was my first time with anything sort of Lovecraftian or a horror beyond space time and thinking about that I have like one of the worst panic attacks in the scene where a kid um, basically throws himself out an airlock because he's under the influence oh, of yeah. this evil. And uh, for like the first 45 minutes, I was riveted. And then as soon as like Sam Neill said, the ship went to hell. I was like, ah, oh, hell. Oh, <laughs> now I'm not scared anymore. You know, and it's hell again. Oh, hell again. <laughs> I've seen this before. <laughs> I've only seen the movie once, but I'll always remember the very clear explanation about how to try out, travel through a time hole, like that they took a piece of paper and wrote like one position on one side and one position. Oh, you just got to bend the paper and then you get to go through. Oh my God. How many times has that scene happened in a movie? Doesn't it happen <laughs> in like uh, the, um, uh, uh, um, uh, God, what's the Madeline Lingle book? I'm drawing yeah. oh, yeah, a blank. A, a, a wrinkle in time. time. Yeah. It, yeah. It, was, uh. it was a piece of string with an ant walking on it. And then you fold yes. the string and the ant is there. I also, I hadn't seen Event Horizon until last week when I watched it for this show. Oh. And I was amazed. Yeah, I was amazed at what off-brand Clive Barker it was. Like, oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, I, I was just kind of like, oh, wait, this is like, you know, the Asylum version of like a Clive Barker movie. <laughs> Totally. Well, it was Hellraiser in space before they did that one, right? Essentially. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. They could only afford chains for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and I'm telling you, in the 90s, Every major industrial band sampled 
Event Horizon, like Frontline Assembly, like side projects from What did they sample? Sam Neill's dialogue or? Oh, they actually, um, this is how well I remember it and how many times I danced to it. Um, Lawrence Fishburne going, this place is a tomb. And then over and over (laughs) again, like, this place is a tomb. And that was my late 90s experience. But I I I still love Event Horizon. I still love it. I haven't seen it since it was in theater, you know, since I saw it in the theater when it first came out. But um, I definitely remember exactly what you're saying, where it was a pretty good haunted house in space movie for the first half. And then I just remember just laughing out loud um, toward the end. It got almost slapstick um, oh. to me. And there's like Sam Neill's holding his eyeballs on his hands. Yes, and where stuff. we're it going, was... we don't need eyes to see. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, my God. That was amazingly <laughs> terrible. Neil, that moment. MVP of every movie that he's in <laughs> totally yeah, i mean but but so you say like when it, do you think if this if they had stuck to like some something more lovecraftian rather than hell that this movie might have been more effective or if, if they just never said hell that would have been totally fine for me i, I think heck? bringing the religion into it was <laughs> was just made it a little more gothy, silly than it needed to. But but I say this, but also recognize the spaceship was a flying crucifix. It, they weren't subtle. I, I should have <laughs> caught it before. Huh. Well, I would just I would just say like Teresa, like I've only seen it once. I saw it in the theater, um, and I was expecting a sci-fi movie, so I was actually really disturbed. At, you know, as you guys discussed by the first forty-five minutes, particularly. Sort of the video diary that they discovered of the previous crew. Jolie Richardson um, yeah. was in that too, by the way. Really? Oh my God, uh, yes. I don't know. Just, no, it totally messed with me. So I've never actually gone back to see like how campy it is at the end. Um, can I throw, you know, one of the things I really appreciated about this panel was like going back and rewatching a lot of this stuff. And it, I, I and I don't mean to like throw a curveball here, but like it really made me think that, and I've got a theory that, <laughs> There's really only two approaches to science fiction, um, basically. Um, and they were, they both come out of sort of a pulp tradition at the beginning of the 20th century. And, and one is sort of the, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter of Mars tradition, which is like space is just humans and some are green and some are blue and some have wrinkly foreheads, but like they're essentially humans and humans will go out into space and we will be Flash Gordon. We will be all this, you know, we will be Star Trek. We will be Star Wars, but it's essentially humans and aliens are humans with more arms or less arms and this, that, and the other. And we'll be able to interact and all these things. And then there's the H.P. Lovecraft take on it, which was contemporary to Burroughs, I think, which is that aliens are beyond our comprehension. For God's sake, one of them is a color. What the fuck does that even mean, (laughs) that there is a living color? Like, we can't even conceive of them because they are so beyond us. And... um. And to even like interact with them will cause our bodies to collapse and mutate and turn into something else. Um, and, and because they're just so alien. And I feel like that's the two approaches you get. You know, it's annihilation versus Star Wars. It's the color out of space versus Flash Gordon. It's, you know, um, name your favorite Cronenberg movie or from beyond or any of that versus, you know, Star Trek. And I I just don't see 
a lot of variate, not a lot of it, but I, I feel like everything lumps into one of those two. And like on the one end of the spectrum, one of those curdles into xenophobia and you're just terrified of everything alien and don't want it to touch you and you can't understand it. On the other end, it curdles into colonialism, which is man will conquer everything out there. And, um, and then on the other hand, there's the good side of it, which is sort of an introspective trying to understand something alien or a sort of like, you know, more communicating. I don't know. I just, yeah. I don't just thinking about this panel. That's where my head went. Well, well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I, I've known, you know, or I was, you know, obviously I knew that Annihilation was my favorite movie of the last 10 years. And I knew at some level it was cosmic horror, but I never really put it together consciously that, oh, my favorite movie of the last 10 years was a horror movie. Because I think of myself as being primarily a fantasy and science fiction fan, and then horror is sort of a, you know, I like it, but it's it's definitely, you know, in my mind, I'm, I'm less of a fan of it than I am of fantasy and science fiction. But so that was just kind of like striking to me, like, oh, actually, the cosmic horror movie was my favorite. And I feel like it's sort of striking. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think Event Horizon is not a very successful movie, but I wish there were more, there was more cosmic horror that was actually in space. You know, I mean, it seems like that's a a significantly underexplored idea, you know, well, to, to, yeah, go ahead. Oh, someone needs to adapt and someone very ambitious needs to adapt blind sight by Peter Watts. Yeah. Cause that's, you know, everything Grady was talking about when we meet aliens, they're going to be so unknowable that it's what, like it ruins everything that it touches it, you know, um, just so unknowable and foreign, it, it becomes a horror story instead of a first contact. You know, first contact will likely be horrible. I mean, think about what we're living in right now. First contact with, you know, a single virus and look at everything yeah. now and how we live. So to actually meet like, you know, a real alien presence. You know, it could either go with Arrival, where we try to understand them, or it will be something like Blindsight, where they are evil space vampires, and there's no talking to them. They just want to absorb us, and that's it. And that's why yeah. I think I always tend to sympathize with, with the cult members in all of these cosmic horror things, because at least they're trying to understand yeah, I was thinking about that this morning, Teresa, that, yeah, like the, the coronavirus as an alien, as alien first contact and that we think that, you know, we have this sort of sense that we're so in control of the world with all our technology and everything. And then just this one thing, we make contact with it and everything around the whole world is shut down and we just all are um, sort of pre uh, pretenses of having control over things just, uh, you know, completely collapse. Well, uh, it's, I, I mean... Can I just say it's a little bit like phase four, right? It's just like cosmic horror, but teeny tiny instead of big. Yeah. Uh, I did want to mention um, on the subject, there are two short stories I wanted to mention, which are like cosmic horror set in outer space. Uh, so you've got Brian Evanson's Lord of the Vats, um, where somebody wakes up on a interstellar starship and there's been a big disaster and it's sort of a, a disaster of Lovecraftian proportions. And then, um, Mercurio de Rivera's The Scent of Their Arrival, in which there are aliens who communicate with, um, pheromones and they've gotten this transmission from humans and they're trying to figure out how to translate it because they're not used to language being communicated through sound. Um, and those are both terrific stories. Yeah. I don't know um, those at all. Yeah, yeah. Paul, uh, Paul, do you have 
I want to get back to Paul. Did you have anything sure. else you wanted to mention? Oh, um, well, you brought up, you know, Brian Evanson. I would say he's done multiple stories that are sort of set in space and his weird sort of, you know, it's funny. I never really thought of Brian's work as cosmic horror, but I guess it, it certainly could be. Um, and Teresa's probably read, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but he had a tour.com novella called The Warren, which. <laughs> yes, I've read that one. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know, might fi- I forget the plot of it because um, I've read so much of Brian's stuff, but, you know, it's definitely, you know, sort of horror weirdness in space. Um, you know, the only, it's sort of like somewhat a field, but like, I just wanted to mention one older movie that wasn't on our list, if I could. Um, and it's called, uh, Quatermass in the Pit. And it was, yeah, when it, when it uh, late sixties, it's a hammer film. When it was released in the U.S. It was called, uh, 500 million years to earth or something like that. Um, and it's a really wonderful movie. Like the only thing that doesn't hold up if you were to watch it now is some of the effects, but, to me, that's like the least important part. It's like the performances are great. It's really smart. David, I think you would really like it. Um, you know, for a movie set in the sixties, I would even say like, you know, the, 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 one of the women scientists is actually, actually treated like a, an equal, which is, I don't know, refreshing. It's very hard to find movies from that period where that's, where that is the case. Uh, essentially it takes place in England. Um, they're digging up a, you know, one of the tube stations and they find this like weird thing and they're sort of, you know, it's a little bit, it starts off as a little bit of a, um, you know, a paranoia tale of the blitz of what had happened, you know, World War II in England, you know, they think it might be a V rocket, but you know, they, they eventually figure out that this thing, you know, predates not only, um, you know, the tube station, but you know, it could be, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old and it's made of the substance that they don't know. And it goes into, I would say like, uh, what the movie Prometheus, the aliens or a prequel mm. Prometheus sort of story, but in a much better way, <laughs> uh, in a much smarter way. Um, so from that was as a child, that was my first, you know, I didn't know it was called cosmic horror, but the idea of, you know, these aliens coming to earth, um, and the impact they had on our lives. It's almost what you guys were talking about. So what made me think of it and like, what would the first contact look like? And in this movie, they essentially posit that again, sort of the Prometheus story. Um, that it was this race of aliens that visited Earth that sort of jump started, jump started, um, evolution to what it became today. Um, so, so obviously, like, people can't handle that. <laughs> That's part of the story. Um, but it's also like this weird ghost story, too. So I'd highly recommend Equator Mass in the Pit. Yeah, it's actually, you, it, that reminds me, Paul, you know, the, we, we started talking about that movie a little bit because I came across this book, The Lurker in the Lobby, uh, a guide to the cinema of H.P. Lovecraft. And I had the sense that there, was a fairly small body of Lovecraft adaptations and I had seen most of them, but then there's a list in this book of like 30 or something. Um, almost all of which I'd never heard of. So I don't know if any of them, like how many of them are good, <laughs> but I hadn't heard of that, uh, Quatermass in the pit movie and you say that's good. So maybe there's some gems in there. Um, Grady, did you take a look at that list? Did you recognize the stuff on that list? I recognize some, but not a lot of it. Um, you know, but, but, but 50 million miles to earth or quarter mouse in the pit. It, it's not my favorite movie. I don't like it as much as Paul does, but it is a, a big deal movie. I mean, it's super influential. Like John, I think it's like John Carpenter's favorite film of all time. Um, and so it's, it's, you can draw a line directly from that to, uh, his remake of the thing. Um, and, and also or even, I would say, sorry, I would even say in, sorry to interrupt, but in, um, his, uh, Prince of Darkness. I was just going to say Prince in, of Darkness. Yeah, in yeah. the credits, in the credits, he meant there's a mention of Quatermass. Yeah. Um, and Prince of Darkness, I think plot wise, is a lot more like Quatermass in the Pit. And I think 
yeah much more it's a much better movie (laughs) but anyway (laughs) oh yeah well i like i have i have a lot of empathy for prince of darkness but yes i wouldn't disagree um but yeah, no, I mean, there's tons of Lovecraft adaptations out there. I mean, you know, there's some Japanese ones. I mean, if you look at like the comic book art of Junji Ito, I mean, what is Uzumaki or any of this right. stuff but some weird form of cosmic horror? Like it, it's, it's people being exposed to ideas and concepts and life forms, whether the life forms are just living ideas or shapes that come from beyond earth and seem to just have this really um intense impact on human life largely to the negative i guess although to go back to phase four maybe it's not to the negative maybe we all should be more like ants i don't know <laughs> i for one welcome our ant overlords <laughs> underlords well, speaking, of, speaking of uh john carpenter and sam neill actually i want to mention before we run out of time in the mouth of madness um <laughs> So Which Teresa, I love. Have you, have you seen this, Teresa? Because uh, you work in the book industry. Yes, that was one, actually. Stuff. How could I forget? I did watch that one for the first time this week. And as someone who works in the book industry, I just completely didn't care about any of the Lovecraftian stuff. I was just <laughs> laughing at the publishing industry. The portrayal of it in, in this movie was so hilarious. I found it eerily me. accurate. <laughs> oh, so well, you mean so, if so, we cut up all of your book covers, we'll find a secret map in them because they all use the same artist and font across all editions. <laughs> I mean, just that alone yeah, is right? hilarious to me. Um, the thought of Charlton Heston, you know, working in this big, flashy publishing house, like, uh, it just cracks me up that anytime publishing is portrayed, in in media it's always very glamorous and the editor is always like coming to the writer's house you know all concerned i mean i don't know maybe you guys your editors do come to your house and and bring you food and make sure you're writing all the time (laughs) tor must have a staff of private investigators to go check up on their authors i'm not at liberty to speak on that Although it is really weird in Japan and like the manga industry, like that is the editor relationship. Like they will go to their artists' houses and the artists and authors are usually the same person and like sit there and make sure they work or bring them food if they're really busy. And like it's a really weird way of keeping them on a short leash and making sure they don't go outside. some of the later um, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide books had to be written that way, where they were <laughs> like locked Douglas Adams in a hotel room with his editor, you know, and it was like a two-room suite, and then so he couldn't leave without walking past his editor because his books were so far past deadline. I have seen that relationship between author and editor very rare, but it does still happen, um, and it never fails to amuse. It was just funny seeing things in the background like, Oh, I totally know where they got that floor display from. That's a nine twelve convertible corrugate display. You know, we <laughs> used to order those in the warehouse. Um, now, in the mouth of madness was interesting because it wasn't a it wasn't a strict Lovecraft adaptation, but it had all of those beats. It was Carpenter's nod to it. It really made me want to go back and play that video game Alan Wake. Um, which was very much like in the mouth of madness meets twin peaks meets the dark half, you know, and it's another one. It's about an artist, an author who's really successful. His alter ego is like coming to life and destroying his family. 
they moved to this like twin peaksy town complete with like a log lady in the Pacific Northwest and get involved with all um, this town of evil uh, lumberjacks who are like darkness personified. You know, it, it's really, it's an incredible game and it definitely makes nods to In the Mouth of Madness. And so watching the movie for the first time, I'm like, oh, I've played this level before. You know, hmm. really interesting to see, you know, and very 90s special effects. Yeah, I, I think In the Mouth of Madness um, has a great premise. The premise is that there's this best-selling author named Sutter Kane, who's very obviously sort of a Stephen King kind of analog, and his books are making people go insane, and he's vanished without turning in his latest book to his publisher, and so they hire someone to try to track him down. And there's a lot of really great stuff in it, a lot of great metafictional stuff. I, I'm not that fond of the movie overall, because there's just way too many scenes where somebody like wakes up from a dream over and over again and stuff like that, and... uh you know, there's only so many times you can kind of pull the rug out from under me before I stop caring. But um, I would recommend watching it because I think there is a lot of interesting stuff in it. Also, if I, it's been a while since I've seen it. I think you guys have probably seen it more recently. Is the vast cosmic alien force that like comes in contact with humanity and transforms it, is it Sutter Kane's like imagination or are there actually elder gods in it? I can't remember. Well, there, there's like Lovecraft, there's like ten, um, like octopus monsters. But I and, thought there was something. There was like that was a product of his fiction, or did that cause his fiction? Because I know his fiction is like the infecting force, right? Yeah. Well, I think I don't remember exactly, but there's a scene where he's sort of like like Bond villain, you know, monologue. Yeah, yeah. And I don't remember exactly <laughs> what he says, but I think he says something like, "So many people believing in my books." contacted these elder gods and like allowed uh, them to okay. start coming into our world i think it's something like that well you know just to say something about cults because you know hey we were the cult panel too <laughs> um you know it's easy to be really dismissive of cults but like if you think about like how many people you know who have like a cthulhu tattoo or a lovecraft tattoo or like Cthulhu icons and toys and Lovecraft like memorabilia and we like spend money on it and spend all this time thinking about it and drawing the elder gods and all this and you look on the other end it's sort of like the Burroughs school of science fiction cult which is like how many people have Star Wars tattoos and like Jedi weddings and all this stuff I mean the money involved I mean there really are these like these cults around this stuff like where people believe in this passionately and emotionally. Well, Grady's going to be very popular after this podcast. He boiled down science fiction <laughs> into one of two stories and he just called all the fans cultists. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with the cult. I'm just saying yeah. like it's, 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 it's interesting to see that this fictional stuff has like such a hold on our lives and our minds and such emotional commitment and yeah. involvement. Well, and I, I have spoken to people who think that Cthulhu is real and that Lovecraft have really you really was getting yeah, real, real. Uh, you know was was like dreaming about thing you know because because the one of the premises of Lovecraft is that certain psychically sensitive people are like picking up Cthulhu's dreams and that's how mm. they know about him and people are like oh Lovecraft thought he was writing fiction but really he was sharing the dreams and that's how he knew about it and everything. Um, I do not endorse that view. Just want to make that one hundred percent clear. <laughs> But um, but I think it does speak to the persuasive power of some of these ideas, like you're saying, Grady. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember well, being I mean, a kid like, and uh, I wanted. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, you know, if you're, you know, if you're not like Christian religious, you know, Christ, uh, Judeo-Christian. I mean, there's a 
maybe there's a measure of comfort in believing in Cthulhu that, you know, that there is something out there greater than us, that we're, you know, nothing but a small, you know, a small trifle in the grand scheme of things. I mean, people can take a weird comfort in that, you know, when you're feeling overwhelmed, <laughs> maybe like right now, like by, you know, what's happening in real life. I mean, Cthulhu is basically just the dark shadow of the flying spaghetti monster, right? <laughs> now, now Clarice is talking about her own deeply held religious beliefs. No, excuse me. That would be all Twin Peaks this week. That, that has been my, my solace in all of this, which also technically, if you watch Twin Peaks to return, the origin of the Twin Peaks mythos also comes from out of space. When Grady was talking about the tattoos and everything, it was making me think that maybe the, the end of the world is going to be some giant Ragnarok-style battle between the Star Wars fans and the Lovecraft fans. <laughs> <laughs> and we all lose. <laughs> um, all right, so we're out of time here. I did want to read, I, I had this um, a note from a listener that I wanted to read um, from Xana Marsh, and um, this is just some excerpts from it, but she says, Thank you for creating such a terrific podcast. I listen often, and I just signed up to support you on Patreon. I especially appreciate the reviews of horror films, which I personally cannot watch, but I love hearing you and your guests discuss them. I find horror movies emotionally overwhelming, the jump scares, the gore, the tension, all of it. When your guests discuss slash retell full movie plots, it's all non-visual and coming through that filter of personal opinion and criticism so I can listen without getting too sucked into the stories. And so I just think I never occurred to me before that people might, you know, sort of like the ideas in horror movies, but, you know, just find them too kind of intense to watch. And so it's just interesting to me to, uh, you know, oh, to yeah. know that there are listeners. There, There's a whole culture of people who only read the Wikipedia articles on horror movies. <laughs> it, it's Is like, there really? Yeah, it's like a legit thing. Um, yeah, some people just really can't deal with, with the visual of it. But they like to be scared, but there's just levels that they're not willing to go. Like, you know, one of my favorite work moments was being at, at a dinner and sitting next to an author and explaining in detail with reenactments with the food on our plate, the plot of Hereditary for people who hadn't seen the movie, you know, and making the little fingerling potato roll off the table. And, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, there are people who really can't deal with watching horror movies, but they like that thrill of hearing about it. So, yeah, I, I think uh, so we're totally like we're common. like the ASMR of horror. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I would say briefly, I can totally relate. I mean, I when I was a teenager, that was sort of me. So obviously, didn't have Wikipedia, but you know, I mentioned my brother was the gore hound, even though he was five years younger than me. But we would go to a video store, and you know, I wouldn't rent any of the the super gory movies, but I would read through every box and read read the synopsis of each movie and it was you know super exciting to go i'll never watch this but i'm going to read about it and look at the cover you know because that was a little bit safer for me to do and i've also found i mean a lot of times just having someone like a friend tell you the story of a movie is actually more interesting than watching the actual movie i mean that's happened to me a lot where and it's kind of funny where you know you know they spent like a hundred million dollars with actors <laughs> and sound and everything and just having a friend tell you the story can actually be a more involving experience in a way. I will never forget the first time my, my friend told me the plot and the big spoiler twist to the end of the movie Orphan. I still laugh about it to this day. And every time I watch the movie, like I still can't believe it's a movie that really got made. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen that one, so I'll have to, have to go. Yeah, Should that, I go check it out? I mean... Yes, because it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. 
Um, and it, it's not that scary. It's more just like, and then at the end, you find out, huge spoiler, what the fuck? <laughs> I also uh, wanted to just, Zana also said, I haven't read much new horror, though I did read Grady Hendrix's My Best Friend's Exorcism and Horror Store after hearing him on the podcast. So I just wanted to mention that. Grady, don't oh. say I never did anything for you. Oh, that's really nice. Two sales you, right there. You know the way to my heart is stroking my ego. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we are, like I said, totally out of time here. Does anyone have anything else they want to mention before we wrap this up? Um, Any final thoughts? Now is a great time to go back and watch as many Nicolas Cage movies as you can. There are so <laughs> many streaming. I've watched everything from Moonstruck to Face Off, Color Out of Space, Mandy. Uh, but it's also a really good time to go down a YouTube rabbit hole and look at some of these Richard Stanley documentaries. Um, did a quick yeah. search for some of his movies. Hardware used to be on Netflix. I'm sure you could find Hardware and Dust Devil floating around. But uh, the other world and the other documentaries that Grady had mentioned are on YouTube. I would highly recommend <laughs> pouring yourself a big drink and just kind of sitting back and learning more about this really interesting figure in the film community. Yeah. And just one thing to throw out there is, you know, with Richard Stanley and his work, especially his documentaries, it's not like we're used to documentaries now where it's like, and then we were there filming as he got arrested and went to prison. Like it's about going into Richard Stanley's wormhole and and sort of seeing the world like he does so they're very they're there may be a little the rhythms of them may not be quite what people are used to but i agree with Teresa; they're really worth it and richard if you ever listen to this i would love to come to montsegor and just <laughs> see what is going on over there because every you know any little interaction i had with him at necronomicon i will just always remember it <laughs> it was that actually i told amazing. you amazing I totally forgot to mention this, but um, yeah, it says on Wikipedia that Color Out of Space is planned to be the first movie in a Lovecraft adaptation trilogy from Richard Stanley, which he hopes to follow up with an adaptation of the Dunwich Horror. Uh, Wikipedia also says that Color Out of Space had a $12 million budget and did $1 million box office. Oof. So I don't know if there's going to be any more, but uh, like I said, I thought it was, was pretty entertaining. So well, I really hope he gets a chance to... Uh, to make the other ones. Yeah, it had a limited distribution and then the shutting down of all the movie theaters really hurt it too, but it is on VOD. So hopefully that'll it'll recoup some money there because I think it is a fun thing to watch late at night. Yeah, so if every Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener just downloads it 10,000 times, <laughs> it should help it uh, recoup its budget. It should be worth it. We can do this, guys. We We've could, got we this. Do it for Richard. <laughs> COVID goals. Um, all right, cool. So, like, yeah, like everyone definitely support Richard Stanley and and watch that Lost Soul documentary, and you will understand why why he could use your support. Um, but yeah, so let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Grady Hendrix, Teresa Delucci, and Paul Tremblay. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thank you. Hail Cthulhu. Alpaca boobs. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our panel so big thanks again to Grady Hendrix Teresa DeLucci and Paul Tremblay for joining us on the show 
And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank George Zidon for sponsoring today's show. Check out his new book, Ingredients, over at georgezidon.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.